0: Good morning, Mike um, Cockman. I can't see you, but if you're out there, do we have any more book lights left? We do. If We're going to be in a, a lot of uh, scripture this morning, so if you want to be able to read along better, uh, maybe you could just kind of raise a hand half-hearted, um, and Mike will see you and try and get you a book light, and you can follow along a little bit better. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ken Weitzma, and I'm a pastor here at Antioch. And that's kind of one of my favorite things about this church, uh, being new and being a growing church, is that there's new faces every Sunday. Um, So I'm kind of excited about that. And we're in a two-part series doing a biographical um, sermon on Martin Luther. And so last week we talked about the Reformation, just a lot of factors leading up to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Uh, And a little bit about Martin Luther, and then this morning, what we wanted to do was just focus in on three key or specific things about his life and thought. And the last one is, if you want to fill it in, it's just the priesthood of believers, and it's the idea that every member is a minister; that you have ownership in church. It's not some institution. The idea that you got you have direct access to God. You don't have to go through some kind of mediating priest through Christ. And next Sunday is a Vision Sunday where we're talking about the vision of this church. And since that's such a huge part of this church that everybody does have ownership and we want to empower everyone to have a ministry, I kind of decided to just kick that over a week. And that way we just get to have a little more fun with um, the other things, which I kind of like. So uh, so you can fill that one in. And then we're just going to jump in to the first two. Just a, a side note, though. Doing a biographical sermon... Um, People are human, and so I could, if I wanted to, kind of pick out some negative things from the life of Martin Luther and kind of harp on those, uh, but without context, things kind of go uh, awry. So if you've heard the the little adage that if you just opened the book of Acts and said to somebody uh, that you read, Paul got stoned, and you, you didn't give them the context, um, they'd be missing something, okay? And so I feel the same thing's true with, with Martin Luther, it's not fair to him Uh, to point out his flaws if I can't really give the historical context, the culture in which he grew up in, what was normal back then. And so we're just going to focus on the positive things uh, that we can learn from. And so just to uh, jump into it, the first thing here is sola scriptura. We've got a couple of Latin phrases that are going to come at us. And sola scriptura means scripture alone. And the whole crux of the Reformation, the reason it came to a head was it was a battle of authority. An authority on on where do you find truth about God, where do you find Christian truth, and who has the ultimate say. And so you've got a whole, I mean hundreds of years of kind of the church beginning to slowly drift, and it kind of comes to a head here. Back in 405, um, the Latin Vulgate, it was the, the Bible translated into Latin for the first time. And it became the, the Bible that was read, the official Bible, the text that kind of everyone used. And so as time went on, less and less pe- people spoke Latin. Uh, so you get more and more of a divergence between anyone who knows really what's going on in the New Testament. The clergy were really the only ones trained to to read the Bible. And not even all of them were trained. And you begin to see something where there's political power being conflated with church power, and whenever that happens, you begin to have manipulation happening, the buying and selling of offices, so rich men wanting more power and more authority, going and giving money to the church to be named some kind of, to a bishopric or something like that, so that they have, again, more power and authority in their province or their area. And so things just kind of start going bad. And it picks up a whole lot of steam with the Renaissance popes. And so we spent a little time talking about that, and we'll just get our villain kind of back up here again. And this is um, Giovanni de' Medici, who became Pope Leo X. And so just an interesting side note to him to give you just a little bit of the context. He was a cardinal, remember, in the ruling family of Florence. And while he was a cardinal... The the town of Florence, the province of Florence, had had enough of the Medici family, and so they ousted them. So while he was a cardinal, his family kind of gets ousted, and in that time, it becomes a a republic, and a guy by the name of Girolamo uh, Savernola becomes a spiritual advisor. He's a friar, and if you've ever heard of the phrase, bonfire of the vanities, that's where it comes from, he basically was trying to reclaim that city for God, all these Things that had to do with art and culture. He was kind of trying to throw them out and get back to this pure reverence for God. And so they burned books, they burned paintings, and that was the bonfire of the vanities uh, in 1497. And he was killed the next year. Uh, while he's doing that as the spiritual advisor, a guy by the name of uh, Niccolo Machiavelli was the political kind of head in that republic, the Florentine uh, Republic. And so if you've ever taken a political course in college, you would have probably come across his book, The Prince. When the Medici family with the Pope's armies came back in and took over control again of the Florence area, he was kind of sent into exile, Machiavelli was, and he wrote the book The Prince about politics and dedicated it to the Medici family to try and get back into good graces. And of course, they didn't let him back into favor and he just stayed in exile, um, but this is kind of what's going on with, with uh, Pope Leo X as he's kind of grown up. It's all about power and control. And so when in 1513 he's named Pope um, because he throws the, the tie-breaking vote in his favor, uh, his famous comment was, uh, God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. And, and that kind of sums it all up. And so he continued these grand building programs for St. Peter's and for the Vatican and was trying to raise just lots of money to do this. And so he was abusing the powers that the popes supposedly had, and, and he wasn't doing it in a good way. Pope John Paul II and, and the pope's recent day they're godly men. And I think, you know, when you watch documentaries and you see them, these are devout men. This is not the kind of man we're talking about with Leo X. And so it's a, a battle for authority and control and who speaks into salvation and all of these things. Uh, and so all of a sudden, Martin Luther comes along and he's going to challenge that. The authority, according to Martin Luther, is in Scripture alone. Not in the popes, not in men, not in councils, not in our traditions, because we can go wrong. It's in Scripture, and Scripture alone has the authority. And so with that, he challenges kind of this whole structure of the Catholic Church. And so here's a a couple quotes from Luther. Um, Actually, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, Luther translated the Bible into German, because if Scripture is the authority and you need to go to that to find out what God has to say, you've got to be able to read it in your own language. It's one of the reasons that the Reformation took hold so much in, in the German region as well as in England and not in France or Italy so much because the lay people or just the average peasant or whoever um, didn't get a Bible kind of in their own language like they did in Germany and then with Tyndall over in England. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. But what Luther is saying is that Scripture is the canon. And that word is a, a word for rule or standard. It's like if you go to D.C., there's there's the official ruler. I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. Like this ruler is the 12-inch ruler. And so all other plastic rulers would have to be judged against that one. And if they're bigger or shorter, they're wrong. This one's right. And that's what the word canon really means is that the Bible is the rule or the standard by which everything else is judged. And so for Luther, he's kind of putting this out and saying it doesn't matter what the Pope says, if it doesn't jive with Scripture, it's wrong. It's wrong. And so when he was on trial, his famous statement again was, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant his writings, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor wise. And I can do no other, here I stand um God help me, Amen! This is kind of the his famous dictum. Lutheran children for hundreds of years had to memorize that paragraph, and so the the canon is is what it is for Luther, and he translates the Bible in it and and all these regions, kind of up in the Holy Roman Empire, the German regions, the whole of lutherism Lutheranism begins to kind of take hold actually thanks Um uh, <laughs> I'll mention something while we're looking at this. If you notice, France and Spain and England, they're all kind of one color. And the Holy Roman Empire, which is traced in red, is a whole bunch of different provinces, so to speak. That's really why the Reformation was able to take hold. And in that area, if the local kind of governor was able to be swayed, his will kind of went for his area. But in France and in Spain, you've got kind of the monarchy... And it wasn't going to work, and that's that, and they'll just kill you or kick you out of the country. England, uh, King Henry VIII actually had a battle with Luther. He wanted more power, more authority. And so when Luther came on the scene, Henry VIII was actually being trained when he was a kid to be a theologian. His older brother was being trained for the crown. His older brother dies, and so he ends up a kind of coming king. But he's still got this ego that he's this, this kind of small-time theologian. And so he writes a bunch of tracts you know, against Martin Luther and earns the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope. And that's kind of really what, is, what he was going after. And Luther, So it's pretty funny. I've actually seen in the Reformation Museum copies of Henry VIII's, you know, little pamphlets against Luther and Luther's responses, which are really funny. Um, But England ended up going with the Reformation because Henry VIII uh, kind of claimed the divine right of kings out of Scripture, that God gives the sword, there's a passage, God gives a sword to kings for them to rule. And so he kind of was like, I have the authority to be between God and man, it's called the divine right of kings, and he wanted a divorce, wanted to marry somebody else and move on. The Pope wouldn't bless it, and so he just claimed the divine right of kings, and threw off the Catholic Church and began the Church of England, which allowed for the Reformation to eventually get there. Um, But so you kind of see how that kind of comes in. So anyways, Scripture's the authority for Luther, and after he translates the Bible into German, uh, the German language, and the Reformation begins to spread and take hold, and people are leaving kind of the Catholic faith and coming over, he says this, he has this quote, I simply taught Preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, he was German, uh, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. I did nothing, the word did everything. Now, let's kind of break this down. So, the scripture is the authority alone. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's just going to, we open it up and it tells us everything to believe, everything not to believe, and that's just the end of the story, and it's just that easy. There's difficult passages. There's, there's scholarship that needs to be done. There's study and There's prayer. There's dialogue and debate. It doesn't mean that it's easy. What it means is it's the root. Whatever authority, whatever beliefs, whatever ideas and doctrines we come up with, they have to be rooted in Scripture. might not be easy, but they're going to come from here. And so what does that really mean to us? And, and I'd simply kind of offer you this. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I once asked a question to the high school students, and there's, there's a number of them, and I said, how many of you have read the whole Bible and no one raised their hand? I said, how many of you have read the New Testament? Nobody raised their hand. And I said, "How many of you have read the half of them about half of the New Testament? It's about you know four or five chapters out of a good Harry Potter book I mean it's about how big it is okay uh how many of you read half the new testament and and I got six hands out of about eighty kids and I looked at these these students and I simply said this i it's not about guilt." I don't care, you know, I, I love you where you're at and that's great, I'm not trying to guilt you or make you look stupid, but here's my question, how do you know I'm not preaching heresy? How do you know that what I'm saying to you on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or the pastor in church or the guy on the radio or the kid sitting across from you in class, how do you know that he's, he or she is not just making that up? How do you know it's true? And I think that's really the issue is we're we're to read the scripture and labor over it. One, because God speaks to us in it and he meets us there. But also, it's so that we don't get uh, led astray. We don't end up doing something really stupid. I don't want to be a sucker. I've never wanted to be a sucker and I don't want other people to be a sucker either. And one of the ways you're not going to be a sucker is when you read scripture and you fill your mind with it, when you hear something that, that contradicts it, it just jumps out at you. You notice it. It's it's fingernails on a chalkboard. And so one of the things I just really want us to grapple with is that we have to know Scripture if we're going to be able to make sure that we stay true to what Christ wanted us to believe, what the Christian church was supposed to be founded on. Next thing is just this. If the authors themselves, 54 times in the New Testament alone, so... Uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and now his apostles and others are writing Scripture, now uh, writing the truths down. And 54 times in the New Testament, they use the phrase, according to Scriptures, or in the Scriptures, or "you know it was written. They base their authority in the fact that it's consistent with and jives with the Old Testament accepted Scriptures. When we have beliefs, or if we're going to talk to people, Uh, Or if we're going to listen to somebody else preach, what they say has to kind of have that same test. That they can go back and say, according to the scriptures, this is where I got it. I I didn't just make this up. This isn't Oprah, you know, or this isn't any of these other things. This is real scriptural, biblical truth that I'm trying to pass on. There's an example of that in, uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when Paul shows up in the town of Berea. And he's teaching them a lot of things that they haven't heard yet. They they don't know about yet. And what they did was they went back to the scriptures, their Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and they searched them to find out if what Paul was telling them was actually true, actually jived with the scriptures. And so the first thing we get from Luther's life here that he brought, that the Reformation picked up, was the idea of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority not kings, not popes, um, but scripture. If we move on, I want to talk just about a God centered view of salvation. And the first thing here is just solus Christus, Christ alone. And I've got a little video clip from a 1950s uh, movie on Luther that kind of is the defining moment for Luther here, portrays that.
1: You don't think much of my acquisitions, Doctor. I'm not sure that Christ does. Dear Vicar,
2: I wish I could be the kind of Christian that sees and hears, believes and worships and there's an end of it.
1: Dr. Luther, relics are not an end in themselves. They're merely symbols of the holy men and women whose sanctity enables them to intercede in our behalf
2: before God. Symbols, it's true, but is the symbol replacing the meaning? Is the meaning itself lost? If it is, dear Vicar, and I say if then we are lost, lost and damned.
1: This is a symbol, too.
2: But is it God's supreme gift of his only son we adore? Or is it the splinters of the wood? The rust of the nails that we worship.
1: The crucifix makes the agony of Christ more vivid for the simple Christian. The little peasant with his prayer to St. Christopher for safe journey. The poor widow with her tiny Madonna. The soldier going into battle with his rosary. Yes, even the Duke with his noble gifts to Christ's church. Would you take all these away? Doctor, the people's priest. You cannot afford to shatter their faith by tearing away its visible supports.
2: As their priest responsible to God for their souls can I afford not to? Symbols to inspire devotion, yes. But crutches to uphold a tottering faith? Doctor, whence all this sudden doubt? This is no sudden doubt, but a growing certainty. Dear Vicar, what little certainty I have you gave to me. You heard my sin. You sent me to Rome to fortify my faith. You sent me to scripture to find my God. You brought me here to Wittenberg to preach his word. And here in my room, I've been preparing my lectures on the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. And here, I think I've found the truth at last. And when I found it, it was as though the gates of heaven were opened to me. Romans 1.17
1: Justitia enim day. Justitia enim day. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith.
2: And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son.
1: Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ.
2: Man only needs Jesus Christ.
0: His view on salvation was shaped as he was teaching uh, again in Wittenberg in the university there, and specifically when he started getting into Romans and the Book of Galatians and seeing the text of Scripture talk about what is needed for salvation. So on the one hand, he's seeing Scripture talk about it's Christ alone, and the other two here are uh, sola gratia and sola fide, uh, by grace alone and by faith alone that these three things kind of comprise salvation, Christ alone, grace alone, and faith alone. He's beginning to see this in the text of Scripture, and then he encounters uh, this kind of the opposite prevailing Catholic view of the day, which is you're in purgatory, but you can kind of work all these years off by venerating uh, holy things, okay? by praying and, and just being near holy objects, whether it's a bone, of some famous saint or hair from an apostle. And there's a lot of these really ridiculous things. And, you know, a thousand people would claim to have the the skull of John the Baptist, which they can't all be, you know, true. Um, and so venerating these relics is what he's talking about, or buying papal indulgences, which is just a pardon. So the salesman that came up in Luther's area that really set him off was uh, Johann Tetzel. And again, this is the picture from last week with the Pope's authority Coming and basically selling forgiveness, it's not Christ alone. It's sure Christ, but I can also buy this forgiveness. I don't just need Christ. And so here's an actual little script of something that he wrote that basically says, by the authority of all the saints, not just Jesus, but saints have merit. Again, remember, and by their authority, I'm going to give you some of their leftovers, their their leftover goodness, and in mercy towards you, I absolve you from all your sins. And misdeeds and remit all punishments for 10 days. And that's the salesman, Johann Tetzel. You see it there, but look what he's claiming. He's claiming the Pope's authority with the keys of St. Peter's. And the idea being that the Pope has the authority on earth with these keys to say who gets in and who gets out and to dispense that at his will. And so Luther is seeing scripture that it's Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and he's reacting to kind of some of the ridiculous things that were going on in that day. There's still a veneration. When I was in the, the Vatican uh, in St. Peter's, there's kind of the the shrines to the the popes of old and, and burial areas. And not so much, I think, the American Catholics, but, but Catholics from other parts of the world. You'll see them uh, kneeling in front of these shrines to the different popes and praying sometimes for hours. And it's a form of venerating uh the saints and, and that has merit to it. So you still kinda so Luther's kind of getting us getting this from both ways and really comes back to what scripture says that it's not all these other trappings. It really is we're saved by Christ alone. Let's look at a bunch of verses here. So uh hopefully you got quick fingers this morning. Romans one seventeen is where the video clip had us, and we'll just read that again and then move through Romans. Romans one seventeen, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, and just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, not by good deeds, not by venerating things, but just simply by faith. If you'll flip over just a little bit to Romans 3.21, we'll begin reading. Romans 3.21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So turn over a little bit more to Romans 10. And we'll read verses 1 through 4. Romans ten one through 4. It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to, to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. To those who knew about God but didn't know about Jesus. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal, their passion is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes everyone who believes can be righteous fully able to stand in God's presence through Christ alone not Christ and this and that and the other but through Christ alone Let's look at Philippians and kind of take it a different way. Philippians, just go to the right where you were in Romans, and you'll get there. But we'll see kind of a little bit more of of this whole aspect of understanding salvation. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll begin it kind of halfway through verse 4. And Paul's talking about himself here. And if you remember the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. So he was kind of like the most religious guy there was. Whatever good things there were that would earn you credit or merit or whatever, uh, make you somebody special, Paul was that guy. And this is what he says in chapter 3 Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of, of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So what Paul's basically saying here is, I worked really hard and I got my stack really high. But you can't earn God's favor that way. You can't ever be perfect. Because the problem is here in the, in the heart and it's messed up and you can just never be perfect and so i'd rather take all this good stack and just throw it away and treat it like garbage so that i could have Christ's stack which is perfect his righteousness that is sufficient so i trade away my own goodness so that i can have christ's goodness in me that's the credit i get that's what justifies me that's what allows god to look at me and say um now enter be with me be in my presence have a part of all this be saved have eternal life And so he's saying, why would I brag about this if it doesn't finally work? When I can throw it away and grab what Christ did for me, that grace he's willing to give me, that stack of his, and by faith grab that as my own, and it does work. That really does get me to where I need to be, to where I can have that relationship with God. This is foolish, this is good. And so Luther is picking up on this, and so one of Luther's favorite verses is in Isaiah 64 6 and Isaiah is kind of in the middle of the Bible a little bit to the right and Isaiah 64 6 and Luther would would kind of read this a lot and, and kind of share it in all these conversations and it says this uh, we'll just I'll just pick it up in verse 6 64 6 all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts, our good works, our good deeds, the things that when we kind of go out and say, yeah, I'm a good guy. I should get to heaven. I'm a good person. All those things um, are like filthy rags. Now, just, I'll put it to you plainly. The the Hebrew here, it, it literally is menstrual rags. And that's not to... To be gross, what it is, is in the Old Testament law, it was something that made you ceremonially unclean. It's not just a dirty pile of rags. This thing means that for a time being, you cannot enter the presence of God. It's ceremonially unclean. God is holy. And so what Luther is picking up on in, in, in this verse is simply saying that our good deeds are like filthy rags, that they're, they keep us from having God. These things get in the way of us having God. What God really wants is something behind good deeds and good works. He wants a heart that is, that is broken and submitted, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And who does that? God does that. God comes in and through grace changes our heart when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and that justifies us before him. Our good works get in the way. Why? Because we don't need God when we kind of start going, I'm I'm good enough. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. They're the thing that keeps us from being able to come in to God's presence. Turn to Ephesians with me, if you would. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And this is what I love about these biographical sermons because you get to go to all the best verses all at once. Which just kind of fun. So Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. And this will be familiar to some of you. And it puts it all together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. God reaches in. He's the one that does the work. And he does this so that no one can boast. Let's just put it together again. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. The whole idea is if it's me, I'm being good enough, I I begin to make comparisons. I might not be as good as Christ, but compared to that guy, I'm okay. Okay. I'm above average. That should be good enough. And we begin to not realize how amazing grace is because we begin to not realize how much we need the grace. Our good deeds keep us. They're like dirty rags that that keep us from being able to go into the presence of God. They get in the way. They get in the way. So I'm fond of repeating something I once heard, and it's simply this. And this is, to me, it boils it all down. Um, There's two kinds of people in this world. Those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know it, and they're dangerous, okay? Look out for those people. And the whole idea is when you know you need grace, you look at someone else and you say, man, I'm a little bit messed up over here. It's kind of like you go to Disneyland and they do those sketches, those character sketches, um, and they take the most prominent feature on your body and they kind of exaggerate it. So for me, it would it would be my muscles, <laughs> uh, it'd be my nose, um, and someone else would be the ears, and someone else would be the chin, and, and they kind of exaggerate it. And we've all got that thing that's a little out of whack, right? We're all character sketches. The real man that had it all in proportion was Christ. And when I've got something kind of a little bit goofy and I walk up on somebody else and I see them and I look over and I see something a little bit off in them, you know what I say? He's goofy too. We're in the same boat. We both need Christ. When I begin to think that I am righteous, you know, because go- we're all goofy, it's just whether we realize it or not. When I'm goofy and don't know it, I walk up on somebody and see a flaw or a blemish or the big ears I look down on them. I look down on them. And I I puff myself up with pride. And so, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's easier for us, for God to reach in and do a work in our heart and bring us to, to a point of faith so that he can give us the grace from Christ. It's easier for that to happen when we are in a position of humility and throw up our hands and say, I can't do it alone. I need God to do it for me. It's harder when you're like Paul and you got it you got it all. Because we're proud of that stack. And to trade that away and just say, you know, I want the righteousness that comes from Christ. That's a tough thing to do. You know, I worked hard on this. I sweated on all my good works. And it's real simply this. Jesus gives a lot of parables to this effect. The parable of the lost son goes off and is away from the father, comes back. And you remember the brother? Brother's like, man, I've been a lot better than that son. How come he's getting this treatment? And he looks down on him. And it's a barrier to relationship. And Jesus talks about a parable of there's a whole bunch of workers, and they're out there at 8 o'clock in the morning. And then uh, at 1 o'clock, you know, some guys show up, and they're going to get the same reward, the same wages, as the guy that was there at 8 o'clock in the morning the guy at 8 o'clock in the morning say, hey, that's not fair. Our own righteousness can become a barrier to being found in Christ and accepted by God. That's why I think these people that show up at 1 o'clock in the day have these great testimonies. Because they're not bitter at anybody. You know, they're there at 1 o'clock going, man, this is amazing grace. I get paid a full day's wages and I got here at 1. You know, and there's the guy at 8 o'clock, you know, grumbling. But wherever we're at, we got to all realize we're all goofy, we're all messed up, we're all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all need Christ. And what the older brother didn't realize in the parable of the lost son was what the father said to him. (laughs) You had the added blessing of always being with me. And all that I had was yours all that time. And so the whole idea of salvation is simply this. It's what allows you to be a son of God. Obedience, when you do good things, allows you to experience the blessings of God. He's able to affirm you more. A, a child that's not behaving, you can't affirm them. You can't bless them because then they'll just keep doing those things. Why? What's the credit to being good? Happiness. I mean, really, that's the credit to being good, not salvation. And so when someone asks, Are you going to go to heaven? you smile and you say absolutely because i have laid hold of christ and the grace he wanted to give me through faith in him amen um we're done let's pray father god Sometimes it seems complicated that there's so many things that get in the way of us finding you and finding the joy that you've promised, the joy that's supposed to come with salvation, the smile that's supposed to come with knowing you. And I just pray as we, week to week, search the scriptures, as we look at um, men in the Christian faith and in traditions, that all these things would point us back to the simple truths that you have to be at the center And this morning, as we just continue to try to draw close to you, I pray that you would just warm our hearts, reassure us that Christ's righteousness is enough and that we are justified before you. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing a hymn now that Martin Luther penned in 1527. And Luther thought that music was of such value because it communicated and gave an opportunity to express the truths that we found in scripture. And so this is a mighty fortress is our God. Let's stand for this one.